in the last couple of months because Julie and I, we just uh, we purchased our first home a few months ago and have been in the process of moving in. And, uh, you know, Chloe was born, seems like, a couple of days ago. And I just feel like like normal is on the horizon for us again. So I'm really excited about that. So I feel like I can be with you guys today, maybe in a way that I haven't been in the last uh, couple of months. So good to see all of you. Uh, we are in a conversation series called Stories of the Kingdom, and we're kind of journeying through parts of the Gospel of Matthew, talking about this world that Jesus uh, talked about, lived out, uh, spent his time, all of his energies, everything was around this central idea, this central theme, the kingdom of God. And so we're, we're talking about different texts that relate to this world that Jesus inaugurated in his life that is breaking into the world. And this week, we are, we're talking about stories of judgment, because they are, they're in there. And um, we have to deal with them. You hear the word judgment, and I, I wonder what, what vibes it conjures for you. Uh, you know, maybe you get a shiver down the, the back of your spine a little bit. Uh, maybe it conjures up images of hellfire and brimstone for some, or some of you might be thinking about negative perceptions that people have of Christianity, because Christians can, they're stereotyped, and some of them uh, are very judgmental. Maybe, maybe you're one of those people, maybe you have negative perceptions of Christianity because you've been burned by judgmental people. Or uh, perhaps you're thinking of the last person that cornered you, if this has ever happened to you, who asked you, you know, if, if you died tonight, Lowell, what would happen? Would you go to heaven or would you go to hell? Uh, whatever you thought of. I mean, all of these thoughts, I think, point to the fact that the issue of judgment is one of the least palatable parts of the Christian faith, especially to our friends who are disconnected from God. Uh, at the heart of it is a question about the nature of God. How can a God whose dominant characteristic is supposed to be love, how can a loving God be so unloving as to send people to hell, as to judge people? Didn't Jesus say something about not judging? Brian McLaren's book, The Last Word and the Word After That, is about a story of a group of people who are trying to figure out what in the world is going on with hell. One of the characters in his story, Neil, says, Millions of people, young and old, have given up on Christianity because our way of talking about hell sounds absolutely wacky. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, we say, and He'll fry your butt in hell forever unless you do or believe the right thing. God is a loving Father we say, but He'll treat you with a cruelty that no human father has ever been guilty of. Eternal conscious torture. No wonder Christianity, Neil says, or at least this version of it, is a dying religion in so many places in the world. The response by many Christians to this version of Christianity is just to get rid of language of hell and judgment altogether. It's culturally offensive, after all. N.T. Wright, who's a New Testament scholar in the Anglican Church, which is British for Episcopalian, 
he made an observation about his church's liturgy, the way that they worship. He said every once in a while in the lectionary, which is their guide for what text they read or preach from every week, he said every once in a while in that lectionary, it suggests omitting two or three verses out of the set reading for that week. And Wright says, you can count on it that those two or three verses, 99% of the time omit two things. Number one, it's either sex, it's omitting, or it's judgment, number two. And I, I don't think the Anglican church is the only group that's avoided talk about judgment, or sex for that matter. As much as we would just like to ignore it, there's one major difficulty in getting rid of hell and judgment. Okay, maybe it's just a minor point. Jesus talks a whole lot about it. Jesus mentions it. A lot of it comes up in His conversations. Frequently, it's hard to ignore if you're reading the Gospels, this conversation, this theme, this thread about judgment. What do we do with it? Let's take a quick jog through the Gospel of Matthew. And it'll be a brisk jog, so I hope you guys are in good shape. Um, and let's observe what Jesus says about judgment. If you have a, a paperback Bible, I'm working out of one of these paperbacks, and you want to follow along, I think you'll get more bang for your buck uh, if you do that, if you follow along with us. We're going to start on page 660, chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. And really, the reason we use page numbers is so that I can find the Scriptures in the Bible. Uh, so if it helps you, that's fantastic. Uh, page 660, John the Baptist is hissing at the religious leaders and he's warning them of the coming wrath that is, that is upon them unless they repent. And then he describes the Messiah who he anticipates will follow him. It ends up being Jesus. And this is what he says about the Messiah in verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who is more powerful than I whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in His hand, and He will clear His threshing floor, gathering His wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Chapter 5, verse 22. This text uh, is on page 661, right across the page. It's in the midst of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. Perhaps His most famous teaching. Um, in verse 22, Jesus says, But I tell you, anyone who's angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. And anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Moving forward a few chapters, chapter 10, verse 14 and 15. Here Jesus is giving His disciples instructions about going to towns throughout Galilee to share the good news of the kingdom. And this is what He tells them. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off of your feet when you leave that home or town. Truly, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. Sodom and Gomorrah were burned to the ground by God, FYI, in Genesis chapter 19. Chapter 11, verses 20 through 24, here Jesus repeats that same message. His disciples have gone out and they, they have been opposed. They, they've been greeted with uh, a lack of penitence in a few towns. And so Jesus 
lays out the same judgment on those few towns who refused the good news of the kingdom of God. Saying again in verse 24, I tell you it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Chapter 12, verses 33 through 37. Here Jesus is addressing the Pharisees in this text who are always trying to trap Him so that they can have an excuse to get Him into trouble and punish Him. In verse 34, Jesus says, You brood of vipers, He tells them, How can you who are evil say anything good? For out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks. Good people bring good things out of the good stored up in them, and evil people bring evil things out of the evil stored up in them. But I tell you that people will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you'll be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Chapter 13, verse 24. I told you we're jogging good. Chapter 13, verse 24, starts a story that Jesus tells, tells and wraps up in, in verse 36 with an explanation. He tells a story about a man who sowed some high-quality wheat seed in his field. And when he's sleeping one night, his enemy comes along and plants a bunch of weed seed. He puts a bunch of weeds in his field so that when it grows up, oh, his, his wheat will be mangled because it's been overtaken by weeds. The farmer discovers this. He tells his servants, don't pull it up. Don't pull out the weeds. You'll pull out the wheat too. Just wait until the harvest. And this is how Jesus explains what this story means in verse 37, chapter 12. He answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world and the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out His angels and they will weed out of His kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth and then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Chapter 13, same chapter, verses 47 through 50. Jesus compares the kingdom to a net that catches all kinds of fish. And then fishermen take the net, they take out all the fish, and they separate the fish into the categories of good fish and bad fish. They take the bad fish and they throw them away. In verse 49, this is how Jesus explains that story. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where there will again be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Fast forward to chapter 22, 676. Jesus tells a story in uh, verses 1 through 14 about a king who hosts a wedding party for his son. He sends out the Evite for the wedding party. Everybody RSVPs back. No, we, we don't want to come. And so he sends his servants to the people that he sent the Evite to. Please, come to our party. And they say, no. Again, some of them get so mad that they kill the servants that he sends out. And so what the king does in return is he sends his soldiers or his, his militia or whatever out to those towns and he gets revenge. He, he, he kills the people who killed his servants. He burns their cities. And then he invites, he goes out, tells his servants, go out and invite all of the downtrodden. 
Even invite bad people that you know are bad. Invite everybody to come and be a part of my party. And they're having the party, the wedding party for a son, and he finds one guest at the party who doesn't have wedding clothes. And he asks him in verse 12, Friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. The king told the attendants, Tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but a few are chosen. The idea in this text is that Israel and its religious leaders in particular received the initial invites, said no to that Evite, and refused them by killing God's servants, God's prophets, including Jesus, to come. A little bit of foreshadowing. Chapter three, or chapter 23, verse 33. Here Jesus is just going at the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. And uh, he's in the midst of his, his seven woes. Woe to you for this. Woe to you for this. How could you do this? How could you do this? In the midst of this, in verse 33, he says, You snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Final, final reference, chapter 25. Flip forward a page, verses 31 through 46. Jesus is describing a judgment scene that revolves around how people treated the downtrodden, the least of these. Uh, In verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on His right and the goats on his left. Now, you're determined to be a sheep or a goat on the basis of whether or not you ignored someone who was hungry or without clothes or in prison. And if you ignored them, that made you in the they category, the unrighteous category, verse 46. Then they, the unrighteous, people who ignored the downtrodden, they will go away to eternal punishment. But the righteous, the people who paid attention to the downtrodden, they will go to eternal life. That was a good job. Jesus had a lot to say about judgment. And it's kind of overwhelming how harsh His language is sometimes. And at first glance, it seems like He's not too concerned at all with our hesitations about the conflict between God's love and punishment. Because other texts... Uh, he'll, he'll talk about loving God and loving others and God loving us. Uh, right there, in, in, ju- juxtaposed alongside of these texts of judgment. And he certainly doesn't omit this language talk. He doesn't, he doesn't skip over it or ignore it as, as we might be tempted to today in our context. As I look closer at these texts at the same time, I discovered uh, that there was more than meets the eye. Some of my definitions of judgment and hell, I think, were more defined by my popular culture uh, and more defined by maybe guys like Dante, if you remember reading him in high school. They were more defined by those kind of people than, than maybe by Jesus. I was using my own definitions, and, and Jesus, as I've discovered, he has different definitions of what's going on. And so I, I want to... This, this will be a little uh, intellectual, if you will. Forgive me. I, I, I'm, I'm trying to wrap my head around hell. So let me just share with you four observations that I made as I dug into these texts that we just read. Four observations uh, that summarize what I found. 
Number one, we have to remember that the giant looming backdrop to Jesus' comments was Rome, the Roman Empire. And Israel, like it had so many times in history, was under the control of a very powerful foreign nation. They were under the power of Egypt, Assyria, Babylonia, Persia, Greece, all at one time, and now it's Rome. N.T. Wright makes a great case that Jesus was just like one of the Old Testament prophets, say Isaiah or Jeremiah, who warned Israel that if they didn't repent, God would punish them by way of a foreign nation. And in the Old Testament, that's exactly what happens. Israel gets captured by Assyria and Babylon. And so if Jesus is a prophet akin to Isaiah or Jeremiah, when he says things like, beware the coming wrath or repent before the day of judgment, he's not talking about some final judgment at the end of the world. He's talking about Rome. Translation, if you don't repent and take the way of peace and humility, you're going to end up head-to-head with Rome, and Rome will crush you. If you don't repent, God will use this big nation, this big empire that doesn't have patience for little bitty countries to crush you. That will be your judgment day. Rome, what Rome will do to you will be worse than what God did to Sodom and Gomorrah. The day of judgment, and that phrase, day of judgment, I I don't think it's about hell as we conceive it. It's about Israel getting its rear kicked by Rome if they didn't change their relationship to God and their behavior. Second observation, Jesus' reference to hell is actually the word Gehenna. In Jesus' day, if people heard the word Gehenna, they wouldn't think of going to hell after you die and living in eternal flames of conscious torment. They thought of the valley of Gehenna, Gehenna, outside of the gate of the southwest corner of Jerusalem. Do you know what that was? It was the trash heap. It was where you put the rubbish. And there was a flame, there was fire that burned there constantly to burn up the trash. There were carcasses there. There were worms there that ate away the the flesh of carcasses. It stunk. It was decayed. It It was offensive. You didn't want to go to Gehenna. And that's what people thought of. It was Jerusalem's trash heap. And so when Jesus uses this phrase, if you remain angry, you'll end up in Gehenna. Uh, You Pharisees, if you keep it up, you'll be sentenced to Gehenna. He's saying if you keep on track, if you keep going down this path, you're going to offend Rome and Rome will crush you and turn you in to the kind of trash heap that you've got sitting down there in the valley of Gehenna. Jesus is using this word metaphorically for the way God will use Rome to exact punishment on Israel. And significantly, this is exactly what happens several decades later after Jesus, eighty seventy, Titus comes, one of Rome's generals, he ransacks Jerusalem, he burns it, he loots the temple, he kills a bunch of people. That is the day of judgment. That is Israel's hell. That is Gehenna for Israel. Observation number three. Have you ever noticed how there's not a whole lot of talk about heaven and hell in the Old Testament? 
the verses that we, we try traditionally to use to talk about heaven and hell um, are actually kind of stretched to uh, approach the subject of heaven or hell or judgment or whatever. And that's because in large part, Israel didn't have much conception of the afterlife. Isn't that crazy? They thought, well, you die, then you go to Sheol, this, this dark, neutral place of the dead, game over. That's kind of what had no conception of afterlife, no conception of resurrection. All of those are later developments for the Israelite people. Most of these ideas cropped up outside of Israel. Go figure, God using people outside of God's people in places like Egypt, Mesopotamia, Greece. After the completion of the Old Testament canon, uh, all of these ideas were brewing up until the time period of Jesus and groups like the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they used this afterlife imagery because there were some sinners in their midst. And they did, this, this afterlife language was really motivational. And so they would use the afterlife language to say, you need to straighten up or you're going to go to hell. You're going to have a hard time in the afterlife if you don't straighten up. Their motivation was if we can clean up Israel, then God will take care of Rome for good. Did you notice that most of the texts in which Jesus talks about angels and the end of the age are addressed to religious leaders? The people who borrowed this this language of the afterlife and begin to develop for themselves? The story in chapter 22 about the wedding party. It's all about how the Pharisees miss out on the party and get sent to hell, if you will. The place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus uses this afterlife imagery. And this is what's great about Jesus. They've borrowed this language from other people and are beginning to integrate it into the way that they think about God. And Jesus borrows it from them. They've used it against, against the sinners to scapegoat people. Jesus borrows it from them and He uses it against them. He points it right back at them. The very people, the, uh, the Pharisees were trying to harm, Jesus was protecting with this afterlife uh, afterlife imagery, this language of hell. Okay, I mean, these are probably, these are new thoughts. Uh, these have been new thoughts for me. These, are, these might be new thoughts for you too. What do we do with this? Uh, does this mean if Gehenna's metaphorical, if the day of the judgment is more rooted in a historical context than the final day of judgment, does this just mean it's all metaphorical and that, that there's really no afterlife or there's no judgment? I mean, we can just kind of say, well, it's not, it, doesn't really, it doesn't really matter. What do, we, what do we do with this information? Was all of this just metaphorical? I don't think so. Uh, even with points one through three, it's really hard still to filter out a final judgment, kind of the end of the world, end of the age, cataclysmic separation of good and evil. Texts like 25, 31. I mean, they, it's hard to read that as Jesus uh, dealing with Rome or some, some context in the, the midst of uh, Israelites present when it says, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and the angels with Him and He'll separate the sheep from the goats. It seems like He's actually talking about some sort of final judgment. Paul, probably one of the most well-known predecessors of Jesus, confirms this thought in some of his writings. In 2 Corinthians, he writes, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive what is due them for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. There will be a, a time of final judgment. 
But I think we miss the point of judgment unless we see it within God's greater scope of world restoration. Unless we view judgment within God's broader plan to renew and restore the entire world, we, we miss the point of judgment. We miss the point of God's determination and, and cleanup. If God actually intends not to cart us off to some heavenly atmosphere somewhere where we get to be with Jesus for the rest of our lives, if God actually intends, on the contrary, to restore this world, the kind of picture that we get in Revelation of, of heaven coming down, not people going away to heaven somewhere, if God intends that, then He's going to have to do some cleaning up, isn't He? Everything that's broken in this world will have to be fixed or else thrown out for new stuff. God will have to clean house a little bit to get this world back into shape. That is the judgment. That is the function of judgment. To, to clean, to begin to renew and, and make new this world as God ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. Okay, so, so again, what do we do with this? Nice history lesson, Charles. What do we do with this? Here are my three takeaways. First, Jesus' main concern is with the here and now. I'm taking away from this that Jesus' main concern, and, and the reason He uses judgment language to begin with, is not because He wants us to care just uh, ultimately about everything that happens after we die. Jesus wants us to care about what we're doing right now and how we're living right now and how we're connecting to the reign of God in this world in the here and now. And He uses this language of judgment as a way of getting our attention about our behavior in the present. In the words of Dr. Switzer, played by Bob Newhart in the popular Mad TV sketch, we need to stop it. Bob Newhart says, stop it. You've got sin or brokenness in your life. Stop it. You're oppressing people? Stop it! I mean, that, that is the call of Jesus through this judgment. He's asking us to turn from the things we're doing that are wrong. and e Stop it! It's not about making sure primarily that we're good for the future so that we can get our ticket to that place in the by and by as much as it is about being good in the present and embodying the kingdom of God in the present. My second takeaway is that judgment doesn't have to be bad news. Judgment, if you think about it, judgment is not bad news. It has negative connotations, but judgment is actually good news. Just ask the Rwandans whose families were slaughtered in genocide or the Africans who were oppressed by apartheid in South Africa or the millions of Jews who were slaughtered in the Holocaust or the thousands of children that are abused in our city, or the countless homeless in our city that are mistreated and taken advantage of. They're looking forward to judgment. Judgment is good news for them. Judgment means they'll finally be released from their oppression for good. Judgment, judgment means justice actually exists in the world. It means that the things that are wrong, rape, and malice, and incest, and murder, that those things will be wiped away. We won't have to deal with that anymore. Justice means justice actually exists in the world. And it's not wrong to yearn for judgment. Because to thirst for judgment is to thirst for justice. 
It's to thirst for righteousness. It's to thirst for equity in the world. Mm. But what about hell? What about eternal conscious torment? I mean, will God really do that to people? I've got to be honest and say that I don't know. I, I don't know. I don't know what hell will be like. I don't know if it will literally be forever, eternal, or if God will just completely destroy the wicked and kind of get it over with as he cleans house. I, I don't know. Scripture, in my opinion, is pretty difficult to read in this regard. You can read the whole book of Acts and not see hell one time, for goodness sake. Part of me finds it really hard to imagine such a place like hell in the new heavens and the new earth uh, that God will one day rec- uh, create. That, that's in no way to say that there will, be a not, there will not be a judgment. Uh, there, there most certainly will be judgment. There will, there will be a verdict rendered. That's wrong. And this is right. Uh, this, this is what wins in this world. And this is what loses for good. I, I just don't know. I don't, I don't know what hell will be like. And I, I'm comfortable with uh, the ambiguity. Uh, and you know, the, the, the one thing that really keeps me from, um, from giving up, from scrapping this whole idea of judgment and even hell, uh, the one thing that keeps me tuned in and committed to it and believing in it is because I believe that God is a fair judge. I, I trust that God, God is not, and, and fair is so, it sells God short. God's not fair. God is more than fair. I mean, think about what we deserve. Think about, think about this God we're talking about. This is the God who left the comfort of divine communion to take on flesh, to enter our weakness, to come after us so that we could have relationship with Him. The God who loved us so much, He took one for the team. He took on brokenness and evil in Himself when we were His enemies. God did that when we were opposed to Him. That's how God relates to His enemies, primarily through love, through graciousness. God is a fair judge. He's more than fair. He's a gracious judge. And I I just want to trust that God will judge fairly. God's love requires God to judge fairly. And that's enough for me. Uh, Let's translate these three things that we've been digging into into action items as we close. Um, All you house church leaders are probably thinking, here comes Coach Charles. So here we go. Uh, let's, Let's think about how does this affect us as we leave this room, as we think about how our thought patterns, our behavior patterns are to change in light of this conversation about judgment. Number one, for us to take seriously Jesus' concern about the here and now, I think it makes, I think we, it means that we make a decision today to stop it. We make a decision. Whatever it is, uh, if it's addiction we're facing, if it's, if it's poor communication skills that hurt and offend other people, if it's whatever form of brokenness it is, we make a decision to turn from it. Whatever way it is that we're contributing to evil in the world, to discord, to disharmony, uh, we say, I'm not, I'm not going to do that anymore. Number two, for us to take seriously that judgment is good news, I think means that we surround ourselves with people 
for whom judgment is good news. Many of us live really comfortable, young professional lives. And for us, judgment seems, it seems negative. Uh, we, we haven't experienced oppression. And so one way to, to begin to live into that is to start to spend some time with people who are under the thumb, who, who feel like they're serving the man. And I think that's what makes our justice initiatives so important. It's a way that we respond to Jesus' kingdom message to see because as we enter the lives of people who are downtrodden, we begin to see what they face. And we want to come alongside of them and defend them and be advocates for them in the city. That's what we want to do. Number three, for us to take serious the fairness of God that God is a fair and gracious judge, is, is merely just to trust exactly that, that, that He's fair and that He's gracious and that he, he will manage and judge and take care of the world and wrap things up in a way that is better than we could ever imagine. And that, that God's, God's punishments, His, the destruction, the cleaning up process, that that will be perfectly just and fully loving because God is capable of nothing less. And just we have to trust that. And it's, it's, there, there's some roughness there. It, it's beyond our imagination to grasp. It might stick us a little bit. But we, we have to trust in God's fairness. So thank you for bearing with my diatribe about, about hell and judgment as we process what it means for us to be people who, who turn from evil, who defend the oppressed, and who trust in the fairness of of God, I just want to say a prayer and kind of send us out in this uh, as people of love and grace and justice and mercy in the world, as people who who carry the the kingdom message um, that that God saves, that God delivers, that God pulls us out of the darkness. So let's pray. God, we think about your, your, uh, your nature and who you are uh, and how, how you are, your love and you're merciful and you're so kind and gracious to us. God, we thank you for your mercy. Thank you for giving us second chances and hundredth chances. Thank you for, um, for your blessings in our lives. Um, thank you for the opportunity to be alive today. Uh, God, we want to respond well to your justice. We want to respond well to, uh, to your role as judge in our lives. And we, want, we, want to, we want to be on the right side. We don't want to be stinky religious people who end up uh, condemning ourselves. Uh, we don't want to get too big for our britches and think that we have all the right answers and that everybody else is wrong. We, we don't want to have the kind of arrogance and hubris that scapegoats people and sends them away just because they're different. Uh, God, we want to learn from Jesus. We want to learn His, uh, His affinity toward people who are downtrodden and toward people who are uh, considered the least of, of these. God, we, uh, we just pray that You'll make us Your ambassadors this week. 
God, would you work in our hearts right now? Uh, I feel like the constant message that you're sending me and you're sending us is that we, we need to constantly be turning. We need to experience constant conversion from, from our ways to your ways, from the ways of the world to uh, the ways of your kingdom. And so I just pray that you'll be at work in our hearts um, as we think about the judgment that is to come to make a decision that we want to participate with all that is right and good in the world and anticipate the kingdom that you're building and the kingdom that will break in with, um, with finality when Jesus returns. God, I pray that you would give us the courage and the boldness to be advocates and to defend those who are oppressed in our city. Uh, we pray for, for vulnerable children, for people who are struggling um, to get off the streets, for people who are stuck in cycles of poverty and addiction. We pray for deliverance in their lives. And we pray that you would send us to be their advocates. Um, open our eyes this very week as to how we could do that. And God, we pray that you would just give us faith. Give us the gift of faith to believe that you will take care of us. To believe that you're good and that you're loving and that your justice is exact and perfect and gracious in every way. God, we give you our hearts and we just pray that you would, you would lead us out as we turn from evil, as we defend the oppressed, and as we trust you as the fair and gracious judge. In Jesus' name.